I actually lived with an indigenous community in Guyana for a year and the longer I stayed there the more the forest felt like home and I think that perhaps had some influence when I ended up choosing a PhD in tropical forest remote sensing. Welcome to the Nature Based Solutions Podcast. I'm Kim McAllister and I'm flying solo this week while Murray is in Riyadh at what's known as Davos in the desert. But I am in very good company as I've got three of the senior scientists from Space Intelligence with me. So, so far on the podcast, we've discussed carbon markets, we've discussed New York Climate Week, we've taken some virtual tours to Peru and Brazil, but I thought today it would be interesting to understand how exactly you map a forest. How do you know how much carbon is stored in there? How do you classify all the different land uses across a country? So here to tell us are three people who really are at the cutting edge of technology in this field. Paola Nieto-Quintano, Tom Braid and Harry Carstairs. Can I ask you guys to introduce yourselves, please? Hi, I'm Paola Nieto. I work in space intelligence as head of mapping our carbon science. So I lead our science team doing our amazing carbon and habitat maps. My background is environmental sciences, but I also have a PhD in remote sensing and measuring biomass. Useful. Yes, very useful. (laughs) And Harry, you're probably the newest to join the company. Would you like to introduce yourself? I'm Harry. I'm just finishing a PhD at the University of Edinburgh on remote sensing of forest degradation. And I've started recently at Space Intelligence as a research engineer. Excellent. And your expertise lies in LIDAR, right? Yes. uh, LIDAR, radar, and all kinds of active remote sensing for forests. I look forward to understanding (laughs) what all these words mean in due course. (laughs) And Tom? I'm Tom Braid. I'm one of the senior mapping scientists at Space Intelligence. So I lead one of the pods that makes habitat maps. And what's your background, Tom? So my, I have a background in environmental sciences um, and a PhD in tropical woodland ecology. So Tom, what are you working on right now and what kinds of technology are you using? So what I'm working on now is um, a map of Tanzania. So this is setting the kind of the baseline for the country. It's a habitat map, so it's a land cover map. We're using various types of remote sensing, so active and passive remote sensing. Um, and a series of kind of manually collected polygons where we, our internal analysts, determine what the land cover class is um, and make a sample pair. We use those to train uh, a model based on the remote sensing data. Um, And then that's a very iterative process. (laughs) Wow. So what kinds of data are you pulling together in order to create this map? Where do you even start? So, um, as I say, we, we collect a series of samples that are based on inspection of aerial imagery, so high-resolution aerial, aerial imagery for the, the period we're mapping. That's a kind of more labour-intensive process, but, yeah, the high-resolution imagery is the thing that gives you the highest level of confidence in your assessment. But then, in terms of the remote sensing data, so as, as Harry is the expert in radar products, so we use ALOS-1 and ALOS-2 radar products, and also Sentinel-1, um, and also the optical data for the same periods. Um, and collectively, they kind of characterise the structural and spectral uh, characteristics of the landscape. 
You make it sound so easy. Harry, could you explain what LiDAR is, what radar is, what spectral imagery is for the uninitiated? Well, so there's quite a few things to get through. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we can start with LiDAR because this forms a lot of the basis of how we understand the biomass that's contained in forests. So LiDAR is a little bit like a sonar, um, except it uses light instead of sound. It makes a pulse of light using a laser and it sends that off in a direction and it, when it reflects off an object it comes back to the sensor and it's measured so this happens millions and millions of times per second and by measuring all of these reflections the LiDAR builds up a sort of 3D reconstruction, a 3D forest if you like if you're doing this in a forest. You can do this in a couple of different ways, you could do it on a tripod on the ground and this is kind of the cutting edge way of measuring the shape of trees and it means that instead of just the sort of traditional way of putting a tape measure around the diameter to measure the diameter of a tree, you're actually getting a measurement of the form all the way up, including every branch and even the twigs. And so that way you can build this sort of 3D model of a tree and see exactly how much wood is contained in there. And then with uh, some information again about the species, you can look up the density of the wood inside there and multiplying the density by the volume will give you the mass of wood contained in that tree. And so that's how you can link those measurements to the carbon stored in a forest. That's such a succinct explanation. So you do that per tree. That's There's a lot of trees in the world. How do you scale that? Yes, quite right. It takes a while to do this ground-based laser scanning. You might spend three days just getting one football pitch of forest. So we need a kind of stepping stone between that and space-borne sensor satellite images that cover hundreds and hundreds of kilometers. Um, and for that, one option is to use drone LIDAR, drone lasers, or LIDARs attached to uh, planes. So this means you can cover a few square kilometers and you won't be able to pick out every individual tree and measure exactly the biomass of that. But what you can get is the height of the canopy so you can get forest height mapped over an area and see how that relates to the biomass that you measured in your in the smaller areas using terrestrial laser scanning. So it's a case of going from the small to the medium to the large to the global. Exactly. Wow yeah sounds simple. <laughs> it's not though is it? And LiDAR is only one of the sensors that we use to make these maps. What else are we relying on? Well, on the um, satellite side we also use uh, so optical sensors which are a little bit like cameras. They wait for light to from the sun to reflect off the earth and come back. And so that's a bit like what you're used to seeing on say Google Map. Another technology that's used a lot in space intelligence is radar um, and this is a little bit like LiDAR in that it creates its own pulse of light and sends it to the earth and waits for the reflections to come back except that it uses microwave wavelengths so the same kind of waves that are in your microwave at home except they're sending them from space all the way through the clouds to earth and then measuring the reflected radiation back at the sensor in space. Wow. There, there are a few radar satellites that we use um, including the ALOS-2 satellite from the Japanese Space Agency. This uses L-band, so this is a, a longer wavelength which is really good in drier forests because it shows the differences between higher biomass and lower biomass forests. 
Um, and we also use quite extensively the European Space Agency's satellites called the Sentinel-1s, and they use a slightly shorter wavelength, which means that they get a lot of detail and they're higher resolution over all of the world's forests. Wow. Paula, let's then zoom out and we've kind of understood a little bit about the technology that goes into creating the detail of these maps. How do you then create a map that's useful for insights? I think that from all this technology we can map, as Tom was saying, either the land cover um, of an area or, as Harry was saying, the biomass of an area. Both can be used by our clients, project developers, both to measure what is there in the moment and when they establish a project, what has happened before, so we go to the past to see what has happened in that area, and then monitoring, so going into the future, so we can monitor change both in land cover and in carbon. What remote sensing enables us is to see the whole project and the whole landscape and monitor what is happening there, um, and then we can share this data so people can see that there is some deforestation in the area or degradation. That's what Harry is working on now. Um, so it's not only seeing when a forest is completely logged, but when they are doing selective logging or reducing the biomass of a forest, um, that's also very important for us. And that's also where carbon maps are also very useful. So detecting how much biomass it needs a forest and if it's increasing or decreasing. Mm-hmm. Companies are making decisions about where to invest when it comes to fighting climate change. What would you say are the benefits of investing that kind of capital in a forest carbon project over a different type of climate change mitigation project, for example? Apart from that forests are incredible sources of carbon and they maintain the carbon, it's also the forests have other uh, benefits to us. They are important for biodiversity, they are important for loads of local communities, there are many indigenous uh, communities that live with the resources of the forest. They are also important for our future, lots of medicines and things we haven't even yet discovered. A lot of the biodiversity is stored in the forest and we don't even know much of it yet. So it's important to maintain it not only for the carbon, but for other benefits associated to them. That's something I've noticed with the team at Space Intelligence is you're all so passionate about your work. And I know that you've spent a lot of time in the fields doing your PhD and your previous studies. What makes you feel so protective over the forests? What's been your personal experience? Well, I love the forest. It's like, I love being in a forest and I also love animals and plants and I just feel very attached to the biodiversity. So I don't only see like the economic value of it. For me, it has like a much holistic value. So I think we should preserve them, not only for the carbon and the carbon value it has and the carbon markets, but just for what they are. Yeah. And you had an interesting encounter when you were in, was it the Democratic Republic of Congo? Republic of Congo. The Republic of Congo. What happened to you over there? So I spent a few months there. I did my PhD there. And yeah, you can encounter lots of uh, different species of animals and plants. And in one of my fields, there were some gorillas. So I had an encounter with a baby gorilla, for example. I was thinking. Also, lots of encounters with different types of poisonous snakes. Yeah, that's not <laughs> quite so much yeah. fun. And what about you, Harry? Have you done work out in the field? You lived a quite an unusual existence for a while, didn't you? Yeah, I think quite a lot of us at Space Intelligence have a bit of a personal connection to, to the tropical forests um, that we're working on. I actually lived with an indigenous community in Guyana for a year and 
the longer I stayed there, the more the forest felt like home. And uh, I think that perhaps had some influence when I ended up choosing a PhD in tropical forest uh, remote sensing. And what did you learn while you were living with an indigenous community? How did that change who you are? It showed me like just a completely different way of living, relying on the forest. I saw how they adapted their fishing through the seasons, depending on when the forest was flooded or the water was low, how they uh, knew exactly what every different tree was useful for, whether it was building houses or digging, making a dugout canoe. I was, I was really pleased when I um, asked someone if they could make us a dugout canoe and they went up into the hill and found just the right tree. And, and, and uh, that, that was my car, as it were, for, for the next few months to get around and how they made all these traditional crafts from different types of plants as well. Really, really fascinating just to see how they lived. And you in, only stayed there for a year. Were you not tempted to just stay there forever? <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it really did uh, yeah, feel strange leaving after, after a year. Um, it stuck with me and I had to go back to, to visit the, the, the next year, in fact. Oh, wow. Was, uh, so you've got a really deep connection with the forest. And Tom, you've also had all sorts of experiences uh, in the field, as it were. What, what are your most memorable experiences there? Um, I said, like Paola says, like... Uh, encounters of wildlife stick in the memory <laughs> quite well um, so I was mostly working in Mozambique and Tanzania so things like elephants are always interesting to come across but also snakes and things like that but yeah like the I guess the things you, mem- you remember the most are learning from the communities um, seeing the diversity of different uh, uses of the forest but also the kind of cultural um, and social benefits they derive from the forest environment so you spent time in tanzania and now you're mapping it that's that's a nice circle to close there yes i mean it felt like i covered quite a lot of ground in tanzania but when you look at the map it was just a tiny little corner so (laughs) it's a a very diverse country um so yeah but it is nice to look at the areas you've actually worked um and have that kind of appreciation of what's what's happening on the ground what kind of species and what kind of landscape processes so that's a very useful experience yeah. I'm not very familiar with Tanzania so what kinds of land cover is it what kinds of challenges are they facing in terms of the land cover it's interesting and it's a kind of a mixed tree grass ecosystem over a lot of its areas so that makes it extremely challenging to map um, and you need to have kind of an appreciation of like I say landscape processes so fire is a very important thing that shapes the structure of those woodlands a lot of it's anthropogenic in source so there's a huge human impact on fire process um, but also there's a lot of complex agricultural processes um, so yeah there's there's some large-scale um, and emerging industries in things like sesame cultivation in some areas so that's big scale conversion um, but also like more traditional rotational cropping and things like that so this is a very complex landscape but it's a complex mix of land uses as well so it's an interesting country i'm appreciating how much work is going into this map of tanzania are you working with local partners i assume so we yes we work with some experts we have a long history of working in the country um so we have experts um in the country that we work with in the development of the land cover classes and also the assessment of the map um so yeah it's kind of we have our experience and the remote sensing side of things and increasing levels of experience in the, the ecology of the country and they also have remote sensing experiences but obviously 
much more on the ground experience in terms of uh, the complex uh, ecological variation in the country. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's a very important thing to keep touching base with local experts. I can't wait to see this map when it's finished. <laughs> it's, it sounds like quite quite an effort, but it's going to be used as a baseline for all project developers in the country, right? That's, yeah. So that's that must be quite inspiring to be able to work on something like that. Yes, yeah, no, it's very important, and, but that equally makes it very important you get it right. So <laughs> no pressure. Yeah. I have every faith in you and the team. <laughs> well, I don't know about you, but I found that completely fascinating. The the scientific expertise that goes into making these these habitat maps and carbon maps is just so impressive. And also you can tell how passionate the scientists are about the forests and the ecosystems that they're mapping. They've visited these places, they care about the people that live there, and they really want to be part of the solution to the climate crisis. So they are making these incredible maps, which are providing that much needed data in order for people to make proper decisions about investing in nature-based solutions. So I hope you find that interesting. Next week, we have another expert joining us, this time from the financial world. And Murray will also be back, no doubt full of stories from Riyadh. So join us next week. Thanks for listening. Subscribe now to the Nature Based Solutions podcast on all major podcast players out every Wednesday for a 10-part series finishing just before COP28. And if you do enjoy our chat, then check out some of the other podcasts that we've recorded. Edinburgh Space Data Capital, Scotland's Secret Space Race, Great British Liftoff and Inspired by Space.